Amen. Hey, good morning. It's great to be with you guys uh, this morning. It's warm out today. It's really, really nice. I was pleasantly surprised. I put on my warmest jacket coming out, and I was like, oh, I don't need this. It's nice. You get used to it, right? So uh, my name is Seth. I'm one of the, one of the pastors here uh, at Salem, so I just want to extend my welcome to everybody else's welcome. If you're joining us online, we're, uh, we're glad that you guys are joining us. So uh, something quick before we uh, jump into our, our time at God's Word uh, this morning. Um, it hasn't been said yet, because I wanted to do this myself as a way to invite you guys at the beginning of the new year, 2022, uh, you know, um, into a Bible reading um, plan. Um, if you haven't done this, there's right out these doors back here in the back, there's uh, a couple different uh, options. And here's one, I want to disclaimer it. Uh, this is what I'm calling a guilt-free Bible reading plan. <laughs> and here's why. Because if you're like me and you start this, sometimes you do it on January 1st, which we're already behind, and then you get, and then you get to like day 10, you're like, oh man, I haven't done it since January 1st. <laughs> um, and so well, here's my point. Um, you can go back and, and try to fill in, uh, but I find that oftentimes what we do is we go back and we try to read frantically to catch up. And, and, I, just, and I think it takes a ton of joy out of Scripture when we're trying to do that, uh, when we kind of go back and we're like, gosh, I gotta, 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 you know, and it makes it a, a duty and a chore. Uh, and so here's my thought, is that if you, if you miss a day, uh, don't worry about it. Go back and read, you know, the next time you're going to read, check the next box if that's what you like, or just skip the boxes and move to the day that you're on, and just keep going, right, and allow the, the grace of God just to meet you where you're at as you read through these. So um, you can go out, uh, the first one that we have, by the way, there's, we, just, we have three, but you can, there's tons online. Um, this is a green one, it's, it's published or made by uh, the Navigators, so great option there. Um, Kent and our, and our wonderful youth people upstairs in the loft have made their own, uh, and it uh, has, it's linked actually as well uh, to the corresponding videos from Bible Project. So if you know anything about the Bible Project, um, really, really neat ministry. Tim Mackey is a great, great guy. Um, side note, Tim actually did a Hebrew blessing at Nikki and I's wedding. That's our claim to fame. Um, and so but his ministry is just wonderful. He's really, really good uh, at what he does. And the last one uh, is a merged Gospels, which makes no sense uh, apart from this. And this is a book that our life group is going to be going through is something that I like to do each year, uh, and this takes all the gospel material, uh, it harmonizes it together, and it mashes it to one so you can see kind of Jesus' life and story unfold from beginning uh, to end. And so these are great, great options for you guys, but I want to invite you guys into that with me. Uh, and the reason why it's significant is because here at uh, Salem, we, we talk a lot about Cape Table Road, right? And the road is where um, we engage the world in evangelistic relationships, right? This is the space where we either live, we work, or we recreate, right? Where we play, and it's where we're engaging the kingdom uh, for the sake of the gospel, because that's an every believer ministry, right? And so the road, but then we have the table, if we're going backwards here, the table is our place of fellowship, it's the, it's the space in which we eat food together, we share life, we encourage each other, we sharpen each other, and this is very significant, it's a springboard for disciple-making relationships. But it ultimately all starts in the cave, and the cave is where we engage God in, in our walk with Jesus. And this is very important because it's this time of inflow, right? And it fuels the rest of our life. And no one can own your cave time other than you. 
Uh, and so that's why I invite you into this reading plan. Um, but again, take the guilt out of it and uh, just read at your pace. Read what you need as you do it. So um, speaking of our life group, we hosted this last week, and, um, and we just had a really good conversation in the Merge Gospels. And, but in order to kick off our life group, uh, one of the guys um, uh, presented a would-you-rather question as this way to get, to get to know each other. How many of you guys have heard of would-you-rather questions? Okay, about half, maybe. It's about the same as first service. Let me, let me help you. Would you rather question is a question that is uh, designed to make you uncomfortable. It's designed to create tension, right? There's, there's no um, right or wrong answer. It poses two questions, uh, and one of them is not like a no-brainer, and the other one's like really easy. That's not the way it is. There's, there's these catches that go along with these questions to help you uh, feel the tension of, of whatever's being presented. So the, the question that was presented was this, and this is not, it's not icky or gross. It's just easy and fun, okay? So we won't make you feel uncomfortable. Um, would you rather... Uh, live on the 18th floor in a penthouse that is totally up to your design, however big and however many things you would like in it. Whatever you want, it's there. Sounds good, right? Here's the catch. There's no elevator. (laughs) You have to walk up and walk down. If you want to ride your bike for the day, great. I suggest a mountain bike so you can ride down the stairs, but know that you have to carry it back up. Okay? Like, there's no, you can't, and you can't create alternatives. Well, what if I made a zip line? You know, nope, no, none of that. Okay? Would you rather live in that environment um, with everything you want, but you have to walk? And, like, for, you, for those of you with parents, as parents, like, with kids, you're like, I'm out. <laughs> That's so hard. Can you imagine trekking all of your kids' stuff up 18 floors and down every day? Or would you rather uh, live in a house the size of the stage, but it's one room, but it's one floor, first story? You don't have to worry about the stairs or the elevator, uh, but uh, you're going to have to do everything of your life within this confined space. And it creates tension. And this is, these are unreal, unreal, like uh, they're obviously meant to do this, but, um, and the reality is, is that it creates tension in our hearts as to which one we would choose and which one we would pick. Uh, as I think about this, as I was processing, we came out of this series, um, we were in Ephesians last fall, and we had this series around hope for Christmas, right, leading up to Christmas, and then coming out of Christmas, surprised by hope, and this idea that we're created for heaven, right? We're, we're created to be in right relationship with God, uh, and, uh, and as the, the fullness, the finishing of this, of this story is, is pinnacled in heaven, right? Uh, and so we want it, we're, we're designed for it, we long for it, every single day we should be craving it and living as if we're waiting for heaven to come, right? And this is, this is the thing. But as I was thinking about this would you rather question, it made me think of this, this moment in Paul's life when he's wrestling, and he says, if God were to present me with a would you rather question, and, he's, and he wrestles with it. Here's what he, here's, here's what he would say is his would you rather question. If God were to show up and say, Paul, you could come and be with me in heaven right now for the rest of eternity. Paul's like, yeah, I want that because that's better for me, right? That's what I'm designed for. I long for that. I'm ready for that. Here's the catch, though. If you leave, if you make the decision to leave, then you're leaving all of these people without the help that they need. And so what Paul is faced with in this is he says, like, literally, even though I long for this and I want this because this is better and this is better for me, I would choose to stay because it's better for you. 
Like, can you, can you, like, you get that tension. It feels like an impossible choice, right? Either, like, one is really, like, that would be really easy, but gosh, there's this, that God has placed us on this earth for a reason, right? And, and there's, there's a purpose and a design that goes with each of us, which is what we're going to see uh, this morning as we switch into this new series on the book of Jeremiah. And we've titled it for the cities, this really fun kind of this cool graphic, and, and we'll, we'll talk about this at the very end, but just to give you a glimpse as to why this is called this, is that in some way, shape, or form, the flourishing of our church is in some sense directly tied to the flourishing of our city. Because you and I, together, collectively, are designed and called by God to actually seek the welfare of the city. And he says, when you do this, when you seek the welfare of the city, you will actually find your own welfare. Is the more you see the, the world's need for you and how you can serve and love on the world, that you will actually be blessed, right? And so this is deep need for us as we shift into this type of a book. Um, Jeremiah is a very different book. If you joined us for the Ephesians series, Ephesians is an epistle, which means it's a letter, which means that it has form and structure, and it's pretty linear. You can kind of trace your way through it. There's oftentimes a central passage. Uh, Jeremiah is not like that at all. Uh, Jeremiah is a prophet, so very different genre. It's not going to read the same. It's not going to sound the same. Uh, it's going to be very, very different. Jeremiah is an anthology, which means that it's a collection uh, of stories. And so if you're reading it from beginning to end, thinking that you're reading through it chronologically, that's not the way that it's going to be, right? So Jeremiah has a very particular order in which he puts things in here, but we need to understand that this is not going to read or sound like Ephesians. And the reality is, too, um, is that we can't cover the same amount of information because it's so long. It's the second longest book in the Bible. So unless you want to be here until 2024, right, in Jeremiah, then we have to do it a little differently. So as we enter into uh, this, this new book in the Old Testament, I want to give you three tips before we jump into the text. The first one is, is this. When it comes to reading or um, yeah, just teaching anything when it comes to this idea of reading prophecy. Number one um, is that the prophet's primary role is, is actually a covenant keeper. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, when we hear the word prophecy, we oftentimes think future and fulfillment, right? And this has really kind of made its way, it's soaked its way into uh, modern TV and movies, right? Because we hear the word prophecy and we think, ooh, there's a prophecy to be fulfilled, right? Who's it going to be? What's going to happen, right? And this is the way we oftentimes interpret it. When in reality, in the Old Testament, the prophet's primary role was to call people back into right relationship with God, right? There's, it's their job to, to be the vocal voice of God in God's words to the people who are living in sin, right? Um, side note, um, one of my spiritual gifts is prophecy because that's just part of the way that God has wired me. Like, I long to see each and every one of us uh, in right relationship with God, right? And so that's the first thing, is to, is to know that these, these people are covenant keepers, okay? Um, second is this, is that most of, of the prophecy is already fulfilled. So there is future fulfillment, that stuff happens, um, but most of it's already really fulfilled. If you were to take all of the Old Testament prophecy, not just Jeremiah, but all of the Old Testament prophecy, less than 1% of it is still concerned with events still to come. 
which means the 99 point something percent, probably, of all Old Testament prophecy is already done. It's already fulfilled. We're thousands of years removed from Jeremiah. And so I don't want you just to sit here and like read like what's behind the bush. Like what, where's it going to happen? Because it's already most likely happened, if that makes sense. Uh, number three is this, is that ultimately um, it's fulfilled in Christ. Now, what I mean by that is that um, is this, not that every single prophecy in the Old Testament is directly tied to Jesus or that it's messianic in nature. In fact, that's, that's not true. There's a very small portion that's messianic. What I'm saying is that all of God's redemptive and restoration purposes from the Old Testament are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. And so the reality is that when you put these three things together, we have a pretty complete picture of how Jeremiah fits into the story of God, right? And most of it's already completed. So then it begs the question, why in the world would we ever study Jeremiah? Like if it's already all done, and we we should just move on, right? We should just spend our time in the New Testament. But here's the deal, right? Um, There's this famous guy from Scripture who once said, there's nothing new under the sun. (laughs) Do you remember this guy? So here's the reality, is that what we're going to find is that there are themes and patterns in Jeremiah that directly overlap with the themes and patterns of today's world. And even though the Jeremiah situation is very different from our situation, and the way that God was working then is probably vastly different than how he's working right now, right? They're two totally different stories. But we find that there's nothing new in the sun, and these themes and patterns are going to fly out of Scripture that I think our culture and our world desperately need to hear today. And the two primary things that we're going to start talking about this next week is idolatry and social injustice. And these are things that we we desperately need to hear in the world that we live in. And so we're going to start some of that next week. But this week, we're going to jump into chapter 1, which really is is a conversation, this dialogue between God and Jeremiah. And it sets up, really, uh, the rest uh, of the book, okay? So here we go. We're in chapter 1, verse 1. It says, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests uh, who were in Anathoth, which is a small, um, small town about three miles north of Jerusalem. It's in the land of Benjamin. It says, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, and until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, and the captivity, or until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. So this sets up the historical context, which we're very unfamiliar with, and so we're going to have to unpack this a little bit, but it does, it gives you this glimpse into the end of the book, doesn't it? Right? It tells you, does does this end with a garden of roses? No, this ends with the captivity of Jerusalem, right? That's how the book ends. But before we get into that, let's let's talk about this historical context, because this is very unfamiliar to us. We understand oftentimes what's happening in our world, but what was happening in their world? So if you go all the way back to the beginning of, you know, not the beginning, but pretty far back in the Old Testament story, you'll find that there's this moment when God's people gravitate um, and migrate down to this place called Egypt because of a famine, right? And so it's in this place that they actually begin to multiply and grow, and they're exceedingly great in numbers, right? God makes them fruitful, and they're, and they're just incredibly blessed. 
But over time, like the tables turn and it shifts and they move into the slavery relationship, right? And it's very different. Um, and so what happens is that God shows up. He wants to lead them out. And it's this thing called the exodus, right? And what, what that is, is it's really actually the primary motif or theme in the Old Testament that actually points us to Jesus because it's about moving people out of slavery, death, and sin, right? Because that's ultimately what Jesus does, but permanently, spiritually. And so God is going to move these people out, and he's leading them up north, east, to this place called the Promised Land. And the Promised Land is a spot where, where really God says, this is where I want you to thrive. This is where I want to establish you and make you a nation. And it's in this time that what happens, they say, well, we want a king. And God says, okay, if you want a king, that's okay. You can do that. But here's the catch. Here's your king, and here's the people, but all of you, every single person, not just the king, need to make sure that I remain the true king, right? And, and if you do this, if I am the true king, and, if, I, and if, if whatever I say goes, and you do it, and you're obedient, life will go well for you. But when this shifts, if this shifts, guess what? Like, life is no longer going to go good for you. Right? That's, the, that's the promise. This is the stipulation to the covenant that they are in with God. Okay? And so they, he gives them Saul, then he gives them David, then he gives them Solomon, then he gives them Rehoboam, and it's on a Rehoboam that the kingdom splits. And you've got a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Right? And the northern kingdom pretty much just tank it. They're terrible. Right? They, don't, they don't want to have anything to do with God. And so what God does is that he raises up these people called the Assyrians. He brings them over. And what do they do? They attack. They take everyone. They destroy. And then they push everybody into exile. And the whole northern kingdom is done in 722 BC. It's done. And you would think that this would be like, like a warning shot across the bow for, for southern kingdom. <laughs> no. Like, they're clueless. They just keep going. And there's this guy named Manasseh. He raises up, and he gets on the, th on the throne. And it says that he's actually the worst king of everyone. He does more evil than everyone before him, right? And it's just terrible. He actually even adopts the Canaanite practice of sacrificing children to pagan gods. And you're like, wow, what in the world? This is terrible. This is so wrong. This is so opposite of what God intends. And this is the world under Manasseh where the world is ritual, I mean, it's just drenched and soaked in idolatry and sacrifice to pagan gods that Jeremiah is born into this world. And that's the story. And so Manasseh eventually dies, Josiah becomes king, and it's during the reign of Josiah that Jeremiah is actually called by God to begin his ministry. And he starts in fruitful time because Jeremiah is really, really good. And he institutes all these reforms, and he leads the nation, and he sets it up for success. The problem is, is that everything he puts into practice has no roots. And before you know it, it's gone. And Josiah is gone, and then the next kings, they all tank it. And so what Jeremiah witnesses over the course of 40 years is a group of people who are totally clueless. They're totally clueless. They're, he's watching this unfold, and they are so entrenched in idolatry until the moment that God says, I've had enough. The balance has shifted. I am no longer the true and right king, and I have to act in my name. And this is what I need to do. 
to do this. And the book gives us that glimpse, right, is that the Babylonians come in, right, and they put things into captivity, they destroy Jerusalem, and they take everyone into exile, right? And that's the way the story story goes. And it's in this time, though, as the Babylonians, who the eventual captors, are in war basically with Egypt. And as Egypt comes from the south and Babylon from the north, right, they begin to compress and they're fighting for the rule of the world. And they get to here and right in the middle of this war is Israel, this tiny nation state the size of Rhode Island, New Jersey. (laughs) And at the center of that is this tiny little dude. And so you say, well, how's, how is God going to enter into the story? How is God going to enter into this, into this chaotic time in history, this trash compactor of history, right? And here's little Israel. And God says, I'm going to call this guy named Jeremiah. And that's the story, right? So let's check out this guy that God calls, the person Jeremiah, in verse 4. It says, now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you, I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Uh, Many of us maybe have heard these things, these are familiar, it's easy for us to jump right to the bottom there, it's easy for us to think about those things. But I want us to look at these first couple words, actually, because they're significant, right? Because the word before puts us into a timeline, right, a chronology, before you were ever even in a womb, right? Before there's ever even a thought of you, before your parents, your grandparents, your grandparents, your grandparents, your grandparents, your grandparents, all the way back to the beginning of time, before any of that, right? This is, the, this is where this happens. This is where the story starts. He says, before all that, who? Who's the center of the story? I, God. And this is, this is so important because this pronoun, guys, is going to come throughout the rest of this chapter. And you see over and over and over, God say, I, 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 I. And we need to be reminded that we need to push pause and stop and remind ourselves who is actually speaking in this moment. Because it's so easy for us in 21st century just to read past and go, yep, that's God, that's cool. This is Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, the guy, the God, who the Hebrew people were so in awe of that they wouldn't even mention his name. They would not pronounce the name Yahweh because that was too powerful He's too great, and yet we kind of throw around the word God, right? And there's this awe, this sense of amazement with who God is. And so we look at this, we go, okay, we remind ourselves who God is in this space. And what does he do? He says, I formed you. This is this divine action, because at the beginning of the story, we go back to creation, we see God make, 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 and at the end of all that, the pinnacle is Adam and Eve, right? He made Adam and Eve, or man, in his own image, right? And so we see there's this creating power in God. This is, this is, this is amazing. It's, it's literally astronomical, right? That God can create something from nothing. That's his creating power, okay? And if you just want to remind yourself how silly we are as humans, go home, stare at the ceiling, and try to make something happen. Try to create something from nothing, because it's not going to work, right? We all know that, and yet we forget to right-size ourselves and to right-size God in this moment, right? 
This is who God is, his creating powers. Uh, and he made Adam and Eve out, uh, he, made him them from, he made them something from nothing. And yet, when you look at Genesis 2, the theology shifts because it says it's no longer about making. He says that he formed Adam and Eve. That's that word. He says, I formed these people and then I placed them in the garden. And so we see this theology shift from creating power to creativity power. And we see the uniqueness of God, the special purposes, the intentionality, the design of God come into play. Because what he does is that he, this, it's this word that's used of like pots, uh, like, a, like a potter in, in clay. And as they begin to shape like these pots, and some are like tall, some are short, some are thin, some are wide, none of them have the same grooves, right? Every single one is, is uniquely different from the other. And it's like God sets, he creates all of these things. He knows every single piece of pottery that he's ever created, aka you and me, and then he takes this, right? And he says, by the way, I formed you. I made you unique. You have a unique purpose in this life. I made you, and I knew you. I'm going to take you, and I'm going to set you over here. I'm going to consecrate you. And see, you're, you're, you're in a different group now. This is, this is the group that you're in. And by the way, it's not just that I'm going to separate you or make you holy. I'm actually going to designate you as a person with a unique and specific calling, and he looks at you and me, because this process is not unique to Jeremiah. It's not like he did this with Jeremiah, and then he looked at the rest of the pots, and he's like, man, I'm just, okay, I'll just kick them and see where they land. Now, you're over there, you're over there, you're over there, right? No, every single one in this room is unique, designed by God with unique talents, experiences, passions, spiritual gifts, all these things. And then what he does is he takes each and every one of us and he puts us in a unique place for a period of time and says, I want to accomplish something unique in you and through you in a way that I can't do in anybody else because you're unique. Certainly God can raise up other people to fulfill things, but he wants to use us in unique ways, right? And there's so much application in this. We begin to see the intentionality of God and the way that he has designed each and every one of us to accomplish something unique, and it's so incredible. When I was a sophomore uh, in college, I was involved with the Navigators, and uh, I was at a leadership team meeting, and uh, I was on the evangelism team, and I sat in this group of about 30, 30 people, like sophomores and juniors, uh, and I was being discipled by the head of the NAVs at the time. His name is John, and, and uh, he was doing some type of a teaching point. I honestly don't remember what, uh, but here's what I do remember. <laughs> he chose to use me as an example without talking to me, and here's what happened. I was at the time, a sophomore, thinking about moving off campus the next year because that would be better for me, right? I could, I could be in charge of my own space, cook my own food. It's debatable whether or not that's better or not, but at least I would have more freedom and space for me to live my life as opposed to being on floor two of Harper with like 200 guys who all use the same shower. That's gross. And so I thought this would be better for me right? And he looks around the room, and I'm like sitting right here, and he looks around the room, and he goes, he goes hey guys, who is going to reach the men on Harper Floor 2 next year if you leave? And he just like stared at me. I was like, dude, come on. There's 29 other people in this circle. Focus on somebody else. Come on. And I was like, in this moment, I was like, ah. Uh, it's an impossible choice. 
What is God calling me to do? What does he want me to do? And what John was saying is like, Seth, he has given you a ministry on this floor. And it's only a unique way in which you can accomplish it. I was like, ah, this is true. I'm so sad and angry right now. What do you want from me? Come on. Right? And this is the way that we oftentimes do life, these impossible, impossible choices. And so we look at this, and we go, okay, this is what God has just dropped this, this bomb, like on Jeremiah. How does Jeremiah respond? He says, ah, Lord God, I don't know how to speak. And on top of that, I'm just a youth, right? Like, I don't know how to speak, right? That's not my gifting. That's not how you've wired me. That's God's like, no, actually it is, because I know you, and I formed you, and I appointed you. I know what you're capable of, and I know what I want to do in you, right? And you go, ah, well, well, I'm just a youth. I'm just a young guy, right? And it's in this moment where we, as God, like, confronts us, and as he's looking at us and talking to us, we have to put ourselves in the shoes of Jeremiah. Because what, what's happening here is God's saying, Jeremiah, this is what I long to do in you and through you, right? This is my plan. This is my kingdom-building plan. And we have to weigh out, if we're in his shoes, do I want to build God's kingdom or do I want to build Seth's kingdom? Do I want to use my gifts and talents and passions to do what I think I need to do, or am I going to listen to God and do what he thinks that I ought to do? And the reality is, right, guys, this is a, this is an, this is a whole thing, right? Because we look at this, how, how does God reply to, to Jeremiah? He says this, he says, do not say that I am only a youth. Right, guys, hear, hear this, your age is irrelevant to the call in your life. Right? If you are a kid, if you are in elementary school, guess what? God has uniquely equipped you and designed you to be a missionary in your elementary school. Middle school, high school, college, same thing. Young adults, same thing. Adults and beyond, right? We can create all sorts of excuses. It's so easy, right? But I want a platform every single age, right? Is, is a missionary to the, to the people where God has called us, where we live and where we work and what we, and where we recreate, right, where we play. And I love that the way that like, this plays out, right, because I think there's this contrast here that the author wants us to see, right, because there's the words that God says and there's the words that Jeremiah says. God says, hey, hey, Jeremiah, here's what I want you to know. Uh, before I even formed you, which by the way was an incredibly unique way, there's no one else like you, on earth for the rest of history. I formed you, but before I even did that, I knew you, I, I uh, consecrated you, and I appointed you. Those are my words, right? That's weighty, so weighty. And then here's my words, ah, but I'm young. Do you see the difference? One has weight and one doesn't. And we have to wrestle with who am I, what am I willing to do as God calls me to do it? Because I want to give excuses, excuses, but God, but God, but God. He's like, Seth, 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 I know you. I formed you. I appointed you. I have a plan for you. It's exactly where I have you, exactly what I want for you. Are you on board? Right? And here's how he finishes this, right? It's this unlimited call here. He says, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. <laughs> right? You see the unlimited nature of this? Guess what if the church, like, prayed this? God, to whoever you send me, I will go. To whoever you want me to speak, I will speak. It makes me think of that Chris Tomlin song. 
Where you go, I'll go. When you stay, you remember this one? When you stay, I'll stay. I will follow you. And he goes on. What does he say? He says, whom you love, I will love. Whom you serve, I will serve. If this life I lose, I will follow you. You see, we sing this song, and we're like, man, that was such a good worship song. All my heart is pounding. Let's get it go. And God says, Seth, will you go? I'm like, nah, I'm out. But that song was great, though. It was good. Man, I was in it until you said go. <laughs> right? That's the way we do it. That's the way that we live life, right? It's not just me. I hope not, right? right? This is something that happens. And so here's my question. As you look at Jeremiah, right? Jeremiah, he, he, you know, what if Jeremiah came back to God and said, okay, God, I'm in. I'll do it in my hometown, Anathoth. God's like, cool. No, it's bigger than that. It's bigger than that. Okay, uh, I'll do it in Judah, southern kingdom. Nope, bigger than that. God says, guess what? I got you over nations and kingdoms. That's the role that I have for you. And I don't know where each and every one of us are today, and I don't know what God's doing in you and through you. I don't know if it's a ton. I don't know if it's very little. I don't know what you're experiencing. But my question would be this. What if God wants to do bigger things in you and through you than he is right now? Because it carries that Ephesians 3 prayer from Ephesians that God, who is able to do far more than we ever ask or imagine, right? Like, what if that was carried into my prayer? God, what do you want to do both in me and through me? What if he wants to do more than what he's currently doing? And what God says next is not surprising because he says, do not be afraid. Tell me where in these verses has it said yet so far that Jeremiah is afraid? Nowhere. And yet God looks at Jeremiah and he's like, dude, I get it. I know. This is not going to be easy. This is, this is going to be challenging. It's going to be hard. Um, it will be fun at times, but a lot of times it will not be fun. And he knows that there is a reality, right, that we would probably rather do something else. But that doesn't change the call. That doesn't change what he's actually doing. And here's what God says at the end of this. He says, do not be afraid, for I am with you. He's like, hey, here's the gift. I want you to know, no matter how hard it is, you got my presence. I'm there right alongside of you, and I will deliver you. And I love how this, this portion ends. It's the first thing. He says, declares the Lord, right? There's this, this is who you are. This is what I've called you to do. This is my decree. This is what I long for. This is what I want in this life. And we have to weigh out in that moment, do I want to build my kingdom or do I want to build God's kingdom? And that's what we have to face. Whose voice are we listening to, to God's voice or to our own? And to provide comfort, here's what God does for Jeremiah. He says, the Lord then put out his hand and he touched my mouth and the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Guys, it's not, this is the authority that we have is not our own. It's borrowed authority, but it's God's words, God's words coming out of our mouth. And he says, see, I have set you this day over nations and kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And you read that and you go, that escalated really quickly. And you say, man, do I want that kind of authority in this world? Do I want that kind of authority in this life? Is that what I really want? Is that what I really long for in this life? 
You see, what God is doing here in this moment is you remember this trash compactor, right? You've got the Babylonians and the Egyptians, and they're fighting, and they're fighting, and fighting, and they're going to fight, fight, fight over tiny little Jerusalem in in Israel the size of New Jersey, right? And there's this trash compactor, and in the center of this, this conflict is this little tiny guy named Jeremiah, and God says, when I put my words in your mouth, you are going to speak them, and it's going to cause ripple effects that overthrows nations. You're like, what? This is what God is doing? This is how God chooses to act in this moment? I mean, it's incredible what God does here. And clearly, I think that Jeremiah would have rather said something else, right? Like, Seth, uh, what do you want your life to look like? I'd just love to eat cotton candy and go to amusement parks. I'm in. Seth, I'd love you to preach to the nations. No, impossible choice? This is hard. Challenging, but God says, I'm with you to the end. Because these things happen every day in our work, in our school, these moments where our scale is very and vastly different than the scale of Jeremiah and how we're called to interact with the brokenness of this world to bring the gospel hope into this world just because the scale is different than Jeremiah's story doesn't make our role any less important. Because in the collection of all of our stories together, there's a massive impact. As we enter into the world as kingdom builders, here's the one verse, and this rest this just flows super fast. This, re- this, this one verse about um, this prophecy, what God is going to bring down. Look at verse 14. He says, then the Lord said to me, out of the north, disaster shall be let loose on all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord, and they shall come, and everyone shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem against its walls and all, all around and against all of the cities of Judah. And you're like, man, God, this is what you're doing? Like, you're, this is how you're going to deal with your people? You're going to bring all of these kingdoms and you're going to set them at our gate and you're going to attack us? You're going to let this happen? Why? Why would you do that? Verse 16, I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worshipped the works of their own hands. And this is the pattern. This is what leads to the destruction of Jerusalem and leads them into exile because the power balance has shifted. God is no longer the true king and they choose to live life seeking after idols. Right? Here's the promise that God gives to Jeremiah. Right? Even though the walls of Jerusalem are going to fall, I want you to notice the contrast here about the walls that he's going to build in Jeremiah. You as a person, he says in verse 17, or excuse me, uh, yep, verse 17, but you Dress yourself for work. <laughs> Arise. Get up. Like, stop. Stop sitting. Let's get to work. Let's go. Right? Dress for work. Arise and say to them everything that I command you. Do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. Which is something to ponder, I think, for all of us. And I, behold, there's that pronoun again. I, Yahweh, behold, I make you this day. Jeremiah, I make you, even though the walls of Jerusalem are going to fall down, I make you a fortified city, an iron pillar, and bronze walls, and against the whole land, against all the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land, guess what? They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord, 
to deliver you. You see, no matter how hard the call, God's promise is perfectly true. And we have to cling to the promise that his presence is with us wherever we go, right? That call. So here's my question as we, as we wrap up and finish this. We, you know, we kind of talked about this at the very beginning. Why in the world would we call this series for this city? Well, how do we do that? How many of you guys, uh, I mean, like, if you, were to, if you were to poll the audience here, what do you think would be the most commonly quoted verse in the entire book of Jeremiah? Jeremiah 29, 11 would be my guess, which says this, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Wow, that sounds nice. That is fluffy. Right? It's so good. Right? Uh, I, I don't know how many uh, graduation cards I got with this on it. Or Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right? And it's not, tr- it's not that it's not true, but here's what I want you to hear. Guys, this verse was written in the context of exile. As the world is shifting, their city is destroyed, the temple is destroyed, their homes are destroyed, and they are moving and gone into exile. And God says, I know the plans I have for you. And they're good plans. So here's my question. As we think about the difficulty of the age that we live in, what does it look like for us to engage the world as kingdom builders? If you go just a few verses earlier in chapter 29, here's what it says. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's what I want you to do. Build houses and live in them. He's he's establishing permanency here for a while, right? Right? You're not going to get out anytime soon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, and do not decrease, right? The implication is increase here, right? And here's what he says. In the midst of all this, he says, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And guys, what we learn is that the the flourishing of our church is in some way, shape, or form directly tied to the flourishing of our city. And we're told two things, to seek its welfare and to pray for it. Um, If you haven't gotten one of these yet on your way out, make sure you grab one of these. Uh, We'll have them out for these uh, every week. And on the back has these verses. I'd love for you to to meditate on them, memorize them, like talk about them over the the kitchen table, right? Uh, All those types of things. Um, And here's the deal. We're going to have some opportunities this semester for us as, as as a church to do things that we think are seeking the welfare of this city. Um, and not least of which, next week we'll start with some prayer. And so each Sunday, we will be praying as a congregation for a different people, or for a different group of people in, in our city, in Fargo-Moorhead, because we want to be a church who seeks the welfare of the city that we live in. Um, I want to invite the worship team to come up, and I want to just end with these challenges, these applications. One, I, I, just, I, I encourage you guys this week to stop and think about the fact that God has called you. Because sometimes we hear this and we go, God has called pastors and missionaries and, and those types of people. Nope, that's just not, it's, I mean, that's true, but like, it, it's, it's much broader than that. That God has uniquely formed you to do a unique thing that only you can do, and he's placed you in a space where only you can do that. 
right? So I want you to wrestle with that, just process that. Two, I want you to start asking this question, okay, in light of that, um, am I really engaging the, the people where I live and work and play? Am I listening to God's word or am I listening to my own? And the last is that we would pray together and seek the welfare of the city. Let's do that right now. Father, uh, we turn to you this morning, and as we uh, finish just this morning opening up your word, I, you know, I think about Jesus, and so many times he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so, Lord, may we be receptive. May the Spirit have gone before us this morning. And as we, as we preach these words, we do it from behind the cross because it's only in Jesus that we find, right, uh, salvation uh, and, and the justification that we need. And so, so, Father, I pray that we would be receptive to these words, that we would hear them, and that we as a church would grow in this, this love and desire to, to, to seek the welfare of the city, knowing that in turn, as we do this, we will continue to be blessed and we will find our own welfare as we, as we seek to be uh, set in the hope that only Jesus provides. Lord, we love you. Amen.